0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Reynolds Podcast, a show where we talk about films that just aren't getting the attention or the talk that they once did. Maybe they were, you know, forgotten when they first came out. Maybe they're remembered, but they're not as remembered as fondly as they
1: once were. My name's Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Valens, Mike Reyes. But whatever our names are today, don't call us stupid. Because today... We are talking about. Uh, well, first of all, Matt, I really should be asking in all polity, uh, who is our guest for this week?
0: Well, today we have Katie Brand, who many people will know uh, from all of her work on British television, uh, some maybe some stuff she's written uh, for the uh, those who like to open up books and read. Uh, for a <gasps> lot, long- yeah, I know, for a lot of different things. But her first feature-length script is now a film, is now finally coming out. It'll be available on Hulu on February 7th of February 7th. Wow, listen to me. June 17th is called Good Luck, Leo Grand. And it stars Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormick as a, um, how shall we put it? Uh, a, a sex worker. Well, Daryl's a sex worker who's hired by uh, the lovely Nancy Stokes. Uh, well, Daryl is Leo, who's a sex worker who comes to the uh, the aid of one Nancy Stokes over a... a, a three and a half meeting, we'll call it. And, and you know, it's, here's the thing about, you know what, I'll get into my my thoughts about the way the movie's being seen after we talk to Katie because there's some very interesting things that I find about this. Um, but with that, Katie's also here to talk about 1988's A Fish Called Wanda, which is a film that in a lot of ways in my mind. It's almost like, I always felt like, oh, it can't be an overdue rental because it was so huge, but no, it, Fish Call Wanda, for those who haven't seen it, comedy written by John Cleese starring, who's well, also one of the stars, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Kline, Michael Palin, uh, about a, a group of uh, jewel thieves or diamond thieves, we'll say, uh, who get caught up with a with a, uh, a British barrister as they're trying to uh, get the goods for fencing from their most recent uh, for- foray into the world of thieving. <laughs> I try not to give the synopsis the way it's written, like on all the pages, and then when I start coming up with it, I'm like, what am I saying? That's right, though, right? That's a good way. That's a good explanation.
1: I, I would think so. I mean, again, we we really do dance around the subject when it comes to overdue rentals because we don't want to spoil the movie, but at the same time, they've been out there for long enough that yeah. people might already know what happens. Uh, but there is a very interesting story I, I have to uh, tell about A Fish Called Wanda that I stumbled upon in in uh, research.
0: Well, we'll talk about that after we talk to Katie because I have some stuff I want to say about it too, but let's get Katie in here to first talk about both Good Luck Leo Gran and A Fish Called Wanda. Katie Brand, please come on in. Hi. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure,
2: thanks for having me.
0: Look, I got to start just to jump straight into this. Um, you know, you have such a well-known history, the TV, stage, you know, also you've written written—you've written novels before. What made it time to kind of jump into feature film writing?
2: Um, I think for me, all of those things have been um, like interesting platforms for me to continue to be part of a creative community to tell stories, you know, and, and it's, it's difficult to get a film made. And I had other projects that I wanted to do and other stories that I wanted to tell. And I sometimes just had to find a way to tell them. But I think my what I've always loved, really, I think first and foremost is writing dialogue. And um, although I enjoyed, I've written some non-fiction books, fiction books, things like that. I think I just love having hearing people talk to each other, and you know, just it all being about the dialogue, not writing sort of long descriptive prose passages and things like that. I, it's not I like doing that, but but really, I think where I live is just hearing two people back and forth with dialogue and 90 minutes is really, I, I'm, I'm just finding that length really comfortable. I can feel the pacing of it, like what, the, what should happen where, where the beats would be. So at the moment, I'm just feeling really happy that I, I seem to be in a position where people want me to write dialogue over 90 minutes. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a dream come true. This is what I've been trying to get for years.
0: <laughs> but with that being said though, did this always start off as a script or was it maybe, maybe it was written as a play and then just kind of evolved?
2: Well, it started off as an idea. I had an idea of the opening scene. I had that vision very strongly of this woman, Nancy, who has finally done this thing that that she was so terrified to do. And now it's about to happen. And she's very worried about it. Um, And he's about to arrive and there's a knock at the door. And so I had that image for quite a long time. And then I just wanted to hear them talk. And I thought that it's not going to happen unless I sit down and write it. So that's what I did in January, 2020. And I just started writing dialogue. I didn't have a huge conception of what it would be. I thought maybe if I was lucky, someone might put it on in a little theater somewhere, you know, with different actors that, you know, I, I was writing it with Emma Thompson's voice in mind, which felt both exciting, inspiring, funny, also extraordinarily presumptuous. Um, but I was enjoying that on the basis that I didn't think anyone would ever see it. So I was just really writing for myself, um, just enjoying the dialogue initially, just enjoying hearing these two people talk to each other and finding it funny and enjoyable and sometimes moving. So, so yeah, it didn't, it didn't really emerge in its sort of form until I, Debbie Gray, the producer, got involved and said, yeah, I think we should make this as a feature film. Um, and, um, and then I said, yes, <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> so that's
1: I mean kids love movies these days. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone
2: to, seems to be doing it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but to, to sort of mine that point a little more, I always, you know, as a, a, obviously as writers ourselves, and I know from my end, it is really fun to see where an idea comes from, because sometimes you do start out with a title or sometimes mm-hmm. you start out with this conversation or these random snippets of dialogue in your head that just Go back and forth and then whatever feels good comes from that and to just hear it, i just love hearing that that sort of process still exists out there especially because of just you look at the market at large and mm. i i don't think they wrote Thor: love and thunder with just a random coffee scene and then expand it outward if they did <laughs> that's very cool and I, i'm <laughs> excited to see that movie no matter what but
2: it's a different process yeah, and I think that just the conversation has just always been interesting to me. And I remember the, Kate McKinnon saying to Jerry Seinfeld in one of his interviews, you know, that comedians just ideally would just want to be a brain in a jar, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I just thought, oh, God, yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I just love hearing people talk. I love making characters talk and, uh, you know, Sophie Hyde, the director, laughs about this. And, but, but when in the first draft, there really wasn't a sex scene particularly. I mean, they had sex, but it was kind of off camera. And I just, I sort of felt almost like I wanted to protect their privacy. <laughs> a bit protective of the characters. But for me, I just loved hearing them talk. That's what I enjoyed. I liked hearing them make each other laugh, teasing each other, finding things out about each other. Um, and so I just—I am a very verbal person, and so that is the part of it I think really excited me. And you know, when you have the idea of a couple of characters, they're very much usually based on little verse. You know, there's an el- element of you in them initially, forth. but but the more you write them, the further away they get from you. And that's the bit I like—is when you've got them finally—they're sort of standing on their own two feet, and you're actually just sort of hearing them talk and weirdly transcribing, you know. Um, And so that's when I think, that's when it starts to excite me when that point is reached, when they feel far away from me and now they're talking on their own almost. I know that sounds weird.
1: So what was the genesis of the sex scene though? Did they come to you to write that like in another pass or was that something that was sort of, okay, we're filming this, we need this. Can you give us like a rough outline of what would happen? Like how?
2: Yeah, well, initially the first draft is what I said. It was a sort of slightly awkward length, and that's partly why I wasn't sure what to do about it. And it was three meetings, and I just got a bit stuck with this idea that it needed to be three acts, three meetings you know, I just, uh, there was no need for me to get stuck like that, but I did. Mm. And it was really when Sophie, the director came after she came on board and Emma was already on board and all that was off the first draft that she, we were talking about the ending and I wasn't very happy about the ending and I wasn't sure what to do with it. And she said, well, they could just meet a fourth time. And I just, it was literally the simplicity of it. I just thought, oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you know, I had this whole like rule of three and comedies in odd numbers. And it was just silly. And that just opened it up hugely. And, and Sophie did say, you know, I think, you know, there's a way to make a sex scene that's, that's, that's still funny and in keeping with the tone and doesn't sort of get, like, doesn't, doesn't change the tone of the film, but it will give it gives you what you want as a viewer. That's what, and, and I just, you know, that was just hundred percent correct. But like, because I'm so verbal, I sort of don't quite know what to do when the characters stop talking. So I just sort of had things in the script of like, they dance you know, mm. it's moving, it's, you know, they have sex, you know, and Sophie said, look, I, I know what, to, you know, she she had experience of it and she she quite enjoys the the, the elements involved in directing sex on camera. And, and so, you know, I think I was very grateful that she knew exactly what she was doing when it came to that.
0: But it also must be, you know, like, especially having a director that is open and, you know, to wanting to delve into those things as well. Cause I imagine also somewhere, there's other versions of this where there's a director who says, "No, well, we need body doubles," or a producer that says, "Well, we're going to do something like this because it's not normal what people want to see." But you're you guys, you know, search that you showed it.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and I, and. I think you know there were some very clear lines for us both that we both just shared we didn't even really need to talk about it you know we are not objectifying uh, particularly the actor playing leo so although some objectification will have to go on within the scenes it has to be justified by the characters you know the nature of this The whole setup means that there's going to be Nancy is going to be objectifying Leo on some level and that Leo on some level is allowing that, but we don't need to take it to the point where we're inviting the audience to objectify the actor. Um, And, and so it needs to be very much felt within that so we talked about that a lot also another thing that was very important to me and all of us was that Nancy is not the butt of the joke in any way that her desires were not ridiculous that this it was not ridiculous that she'd taken this brave step of booking Leo, you know, these and that his job is not ridiculous, he isn't inherently ridiculous, that that the characters make each other laugh, that if there's something funny or ridiculous going on between them that they might point it out to each other or tease each other a bit and to create that intimacy between them because laughing together is sexy, it's intimate, you know. And and so you can create intimacy just by having two people enjoy humor together, for example, and you can watch them do that. So uh, I think those were the, some of the things that we all like really agreed on.
1: That's That really is something important to include in a story like this because you could, Very easily, I I I like to talk about the lesser version or the wrong version of something, (laughs) especially with a concept like this. And you could just imagine, oh, it's it's so funny because she's she's going back into the dating world for the first time, and it's Mm -hmm. so wacky. And you throw this into like the 1980s, and it's some sort of like you're 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 not really laughing with the character so much as you're laughing at them. And Mm -hmm. just this is you know we're we're in such a a wild era of storytelling because more mature versions like this are allowed to to be present and then it's just something where you watch it and it's like while I still feel like it's something I've seen before it's a different spin on it that we should have seen a long time ago
2: yeah um well I think what's been interesting about these sorts of things in the in 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 our business is that The data from streaming platforms has given a lot of filmmakers and funders and financiers a really clear indication of what people are enjoying watching and what they'd like to see more of. And I think this myth that has been allowed to grow up around the film and and tv that only certain protagonists are going to hook the audience that you know particularly that i mean i've been told a million times in the past you know that yeah we'd love to make this but really the audience likes to see a white man mm-hmm. in the lead and and that's the eye through which we we consider the world and that's the base level that's the norm and really we would love to do this but it's just the audiences don't like it you know and it's just such a disservice to the audiences because i mean, throughout comedy my my you know, I started out in live comedy and stand-up comedy, sketch comedy. I had a TV show. And again, people used to say all the time, you know, the thing is people don't find women funny and actually women don't find women funny. Women prefer Mm -hmm. it when the man's doing comedy. You know, all of this stuff that just sort of took on this mythological status. But I read an article a while ago with Reese Witherspoon in her producing capacity talking about this data from streaming apps, uh, from streaming platforms that shows very clearly that people... Are really happy to watch a very wide, diverse, uh, you know, range of stories featuring all kinds of people in the lead, written by all kinds of people, all kinds of viewpoints and angles, and it's just simply not true that you know men want to watch stuff with women. You know, we we're all really happy to just watch things that are well-made, tightly-made stories. Um, and so I think that that data and the analysis of that data has really blown that myth out of the water and opened up a lot more funding for stuff like this, which means you're just naturally going to get wider takes on familiar stories or just totally new stories. So um, I think, yeah, I think that although it's a bit dry, you know, streaming data, I think it's actually that that's changed a lot.
0: Well, I think it's interesting too, to, to go to the point of streaming is that there's so much out there though, also, that I think certain things are getting lost, because that's what we like to do here. Whenever we like to talk about films that maybe were really big, but for some reason don't resonate with a lot of culture. And so we, are, we wanted to talk to you because you, you picked Fish Called Wanda, which is, I think, the perfect example of that, something that was such a massive hit when it was out, but younger audiences don't really know it today. And I'm wondering what that movie meant to you.
2: I mean, I, I remember it being on TV in Britain all the time. I mean, it came out in 88, I think, and so... I was a bit young to have seen it then, but what I was aware of is that you, it was on TV a lot. It was on. It was the kind of thing they'd done a deal with the BBC or mm-hmm. ITV or whatever, and and it would just be on, you know, on a on a Sunday evening or a bank holiday evening, you know. And, and so a lot of us kind of saw it in that way. It had a kind of spurt of popularity. And, do you know, I'd actually forgotten how successful it was at the time. though. Oh because yeah. it's, it's a while since I've seen it and I hadn't really thought about it. And I was looking down your list of options and thinking, oh, that one. So I just thought I'd better quickly just remind myself about this, that I'm right about what I can remember. And <laughs> I didn't really, I would just totally forgotten that there was an Academy Award. <laughs> you know, that like that, it was actually a very highly awarded film. And I think as well that that there was a respect for comedy then as well you know the an an original comedy and and things that could be sort of intelligent and a bit strange and a bit eccentric um and also just funny and so i i very much bought into that and the the style of the humor i love the characters i just jamie lee curtis character made such a big impression on me as a teenager um just in terms of you know the that she had a, a look that wasn't about being a blonde bombshell, but she was still incredibly sexy. And Kevin Klein just made me laugh like an idiot throughout the whole thing. I mean, I still shout disappointed to myself sometimes in that thing, that it still makes me laugh the way he delivers yes. that line in the, when he realizes it's gone. <laughs> it's just, it always used to make me laugh that whenever, whenever anything really bad happens, just shouting disappointed at the top of your voice. So it just, you know, all of it, the the scenes with John Cleese sort of seducing Jamie Lee Curtis by speaking Russian, you know, this thing just felt like very familiar as a British person, but also, incredibly anarchic exciting the other thing I liked about it and I like some of the films of that genre is it's just morally completely dubious all the time uh, there's nobody who's a good guy particularly they're all in it for themselves they all end up thieving something or other one way or another so there's just total amorality about it and nobody cares they're just sort of as long as it's funny and you just keep it rolling along then then you should have confidence in that just make people laugh you know that quote that's sometimes attributed to Billy Wilder of um, sometimes sure Um, you know if you're going to tell people the truth make them laugh or they'll kill you I always sort of take that to heart a little bit and I just think you can really get away with a lot if you're being funny if you make sure that your focus is on being funny and so I think that was another element to that style of filmmaking and that era of filmmaking and that film in particular that just really appealed to me when I saw it even when I was quite young 12 or 13 maybe.
1: Yeah, especially if you just throw in a nice little post-credit, or like a, a credits title card where it's like, oh yeah, Archie and Wanda became, uh, they went to a leper colony and worked and uh, yes. all those oh, little yes. things, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. you can be okay to like these people now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah i think all of that as well just dispensing with the idea that everyone has to be likable you know it does, as long as they're funny it doesn't matter that's what i think that you know you don't, you don't mm-hmm. if, if it's really funny and they're laughing that you're already on someone's side whether you like it or not you know well
0: that's the thing because i mean cleese what didn't necessarily the first to do it but that was the whole thing you know faulty towers was the, the unlikable person that you're going to technically love and he kind of did the same thing when it came to fish Call Wanda. it was very similar in the delivery that way
2: yeah uh, I mean definitely and, and there is an extent to which John play, John Cleese plays John Cleese and, and luckily John Cleese being John Cleese is really really funny you know so just turn up the extra John Cleese and the, the more John Cleese it gets the funnier it is and I suppose that is he took those essences of himself and made comedy gold out of them um, but yeah I mean I think there was a period where everything got a bit obsessed with having likable characters. Um, I wrote a screenplay a while ago that i was kind of punted around a bit from some producers and one of the notes was oh she's not likable enough this Mm. was kind of mm, Uh. mid mid 2000s but what was interesting was over the period of time that that film was being discussed with various executives who were all saying it's she's not likable enough girls came out um and was a huge smash hit and suddenly after that it was literally like a flip People going, oh no, it's fine, it's fine. No, 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 it's good, it's good that she's not likable. We like it now, we like it now. And it's just so interesting to see, you know, nothing ultimately happened with that script, but it was just so interesting to see the, the, the culture change, like with one hit like that. And it, that just redefined how you were allowed to present a female protagonist yeah. suddenly. Well, it's, it's
0: interesting, I say the same thing a lot, unfortunately, but it's, it's around the same time period, you know, because to me, the two greatest things in the world, it's always in Philadelphia and Peep Show. And it's just filled with unlikable characters but I played one the right
1: of them. way <laughs> <Yeah. Cool.
2: laughs>
1: and also it's just you know that it you know that someone is using likable as like code for this female character is not appealing enough and we really want to mold that we want to be able to market
2: her and just it's, it's I think enough. also there's there's a fear as well I think just presenting women as ambitious or um, you know, the, in char- I mean, this is partly what the film, the Leo Grand film is about. It's about being charge of your, in charge of your own pleasure, pursuing your own happiness, not apologising for it, not having to constantly explain yourself or hide yourself. Um, and actually, the kind of parts, the kind of films that I grew up enjoying in the 80s and 90s, the kind of rom-com was the domain of people like Nora Ephron, your, you know, or even before that, you go back again to Catherine Hepburn doing this fantastic rat-a-tat dialogue. Um, you know, in the Philadelphia story or Bringing Up Baby or whatever it was. And there was no interest in whether she was likable or not. No one cares if if Barbara Stanwyck is likable enough. It's like, is she charismatic? Is she funny? Is she interesting? Do you want to follow this woman where she's going? Uh, And I think, you know, I'm very interested in getting back to that tone in terms of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, I mean, screwball comedies are something we could always use more of. But even if you just go with the romantic aspect because screwball comedies love to have the romantic aspect even if you just do a really straightforward but earnest romantic comedy out of that that's something that we still sort of miss right now
2: yeah i think what happened was like the 80s and 90s was really strong for that sort of thing um and then i think that the for a while that a lot of uh, men writers comedians directors who are really funny talented filmmakers kind of got interested in making films within the romantic genre uh, romantic comedy genre and in the 2000s and and they've made some brilliantly funny films that I find hilarious but still the gaze of within the rom-com genre shifted a bit from the sort of smart wisecracking woman you know to the man uh, and his story and his role within within the rom-com and I think the female parts just as a byproduct of that maybe unintentionally just didn't we're not so strong in some of those things. And I'd like to get back to the kind of rom pom or the romantic comedy genre where the woman is, is really sort of the female character is, has that power again, has that verbal dexterity, that sort of roundness as a human. And she, she's not just serving a function within the story. She is the story. Because uh, those were the kind of films that I just loved watching. And you know, people like Tina Fey and Amy Polar are still making stuff like that. So I think with that bite is still there. It just it, it just went on another little journey for a bit.
0: And now we have you to bring more to us. So we'll, we'll talk about that next time. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. uh have a great day.
1: Stay safe. Thank Thanks again. Thanks, Katie Brand, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Katie. Uh Ugh. again, I, I I know that we have done so well with the t- the 10 minute pivot where it's like yeah. two movies in a, in a 20 minute pod i know that we've we initially would sort of shy away from that sort of thing but then uh dear guest of the show tim roth helped sort of break us of into that sort of habit which you yeah. can see in our back catalog uh and after that it it definitely has been something that or at the very least we can do 20 minutes about two movies but at the same time it's like I, we want to talk so much more, especially because yeah, again, I, I, I really feel like Good Luck Leo Grand is just it's a it, again it's a concept where it's like well, I've seen a movie like this, but why haven't I seen it like this?
0: Well, my thing, and what I was getting to um when before we we talked to Katie was is that yes, of course there are these discussions to have about sex positivity and sex positivity past a certain age um, you know and but I find that 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 a lot of the people who are reviewing it and talking about it, that's the only thing they're they're connecting to and while it's part of the script and part of what she meant to talk about, there is a much more um, baseline communication uh, issue that's being talked about here because it's not just uh, nancy slash emma's issue it's also daryl slash leo's issue um for 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 things in his life too that he's not dealing with and so yes the 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 sex work plays into it all and there's an awakening for both of them in a lot of different ways maybe nancy's the sexual part of nancy's uh slash emma's story more than so than leo's but you know i i want i want the, the film to be talked about them more than just that i i should say in a lot of ways and um that's what I find most interesting about it. I think is is that after seeing it and seeing people's reactions and being like, "Yeah, it's great," and I'm glad that everybody's enjoying it and and connecting to that, but I think they're not digging deep enough.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, again, <laughs> it's just it's really a case of the message sort of gets lost in the message capital M, where it's like this is what people really want to hype up and take away from that, and I get that. Things like that really do deserve to be talked about in culture, but yes. like, I try, like I know when I'm writing a review, I try to mention and touch upon things like that, but I don't try to harp on it too much just for the sheer fact that a review is supposed to be the quality of the film, and you can mention that as an aspect, but you can go into a wider editorial to talk about you know, why that's such a good thing in the film versus saying that in a reaction to the film.
0: Yeah, well, and, that, and that's also what's great about what Katie was saying about her writing process for it, because again, things that she wrote were meant to be seen in a certain way, but you know, she kept going back to that idea of like it's just two people talking, you know, and that's like where these things start. That's the genesis for it. So it, it's great to hear her talk about it too um, it, it, on multiple levels. My brain is shutting off because I can't wait. I look, Good Luck Riagrani Grande is great. It's gonna be available for you to see. You it's not that I don't want to not talk about it more, but I feel that we didn't get to talk enough to Katie about a fish called Wanda, and I kind of wanna, I kind of wanna delve into this because I think we both have a lot of things we have to, we want to say that we didn't get to say, or that we had to wait until this portion to say as well. So I, I apologize that we're gonna go straight now into uh, a fish called Wanda.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, a whole bunch of listeners are crying out simultaneously to their listening devices. Asshole! (laughs) seriously this okay i'm just i'm just i'm cutting the line right now because i don't know if i ever mentioned this to you okay my technical first experience with a fish called wanda was on a plane coming home from it was either coming home or going to germany okay my parents watched it on our flight like our flight to and from germany i want to say it was 86 we went it was 86 or, or no i think it was 89
0: Well, the movie came out in 88, so it couldn't have been 86.
1: So I think it was 89. Yeah. And then two movies that I caught glimpses of that would eventually, you know, become world shaping films were Fish Called Wanda and The Living Daylights. Like, I didn't watch the whole movies. I saw little glimpses of them, and it's like, okay, that's cool. I wish we were in the future era where, you know, I could watch things on a tablet or a small screen in front of me, but I I don't know. This stuff looks cool. But I remember my family just losing it over this movie. And as soon as it, as soon as my father had the chance, he bought it on VHS. Mm. And I still remember watching it for the first time on VHS. And it was the edition where there is a quick product placement ad for Schwepp's ginger ale, John Cleese. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it is on YouTube. And he, it's this whole thing where he has this spiel about how product placement is invading films. And it's like, Oh, here's what product placement does, and this this is what product placement does too. And like all throughout the room, are Schweppes logos. There's a polar bear that starts whispering Schweppes, 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 Schweppes. Schwepp. I don't the- remember people- that. I kind of remember yeah. it. It's uh, we if we we'll have to put it in the show notes if we can. But that was my first experience. Like, what was your first experience? Did your dad show you this movie?
0: Well, I mean, I remember my father going crazy for it when it came out. I I remember it's. I think it's something that we just rented when it came out on video, and we just all watched because. Here's, here's my, not necessarily interesting story about my connection to the movie, but it does have a little bit of my connection with the movie, and I forgot about it until, again, I was also doing a little bit of research before we got to talk about it, because the film is, is directed and co-written, uh, or at least story co-written by Charles Crichton. Now, Charles Crichton was, was working as a director for a long time, but if you, let's say, look at his Wikipedia page, it would have a massive gap between sometime in the 60s and when Fish Called Wand is made. Um, mainly because he did a lot of TV work, uh, more so than film, but what a lot of people didn't know at the time, they may know now, especially since you can get the videos on YouTube, but my father knew because not only was my father a big Monty Python, John Cleese fanatic, but my father worked as a... Um, an administrator uh dean slash president depending on where he was for like business trade schools and a lot of training videos were sent to them or they were bought them now people don't know is that john cleese and charles Crichton in that time period made a bunch of corporate training videos and these corporate training videos have humor to them unlike they're, they're on purpose, unlike these, you know, training videos you see, which is like really badly made. They basically did the same thing, but on purpose, but they were meant for training purposes. And so in this whole time, my father would always tell us about these because he, he couldn't show them to they had to stay in the building and all this stuff. And so I don't know if my father, I don't remember if there was a discussion at the time my father realized that Charles Crichton also made these with him. But my father would always talk about how there's this hidden John Cleese that people don't know about the guy who makes corporate training videos for businesses and that people are never going to see them because at the time the internet wasn't going to be a thing for, for, for home use, nobody knew. And so I had this whole big thing about that in my memory. And so it didn't happen when I was watching fish called Wanda as a kid, but in, in researching, I'm like, Oh my God, it's like all these ties are coming together now. And I'm ranting a little bit where it was kind of going against the point of my first experience with the film, but I was as a young kid, a Python fan, a Faulty Towers fan, because my father would show them to us. So for me, and again, it was much like when seeing these Terry Gilliam films and being able to see him working with some of his Pythonites. So seeing Michael Palin, for me, which we didn't get to talk about with Katie, Michael Palin in this movie, for me, was the thing I connected to the most. Because Michael pa- I am like one of those, Michael Palin's my favorite Python type of person. Um, and again, very much similar, you know, how he, he did this movie and he did some of Gilliam's movies, he co-wrote Brazil as well. Not co-wrote Brazil. Um, but did he, uh, he co-wrote Brazil. Yeah, he co-wrote Brazil.
2: Um,
0: oh, I want to no. um, look at this now to make sure I'm not going crazy. I'm pretty sure he co-wrote it. Because it's been so long since I've looked at the, the credits. Um, and I apologize no. for my...
1: Uh... No, that was Terry Gilliam, Tom Stoppard, and Charles McCone. Yes,
0: yeah, so that's right. Exactly. He He co-wrote something somewhere. Anyway, it was Time Bandits. He co-wrote Time Bandits. That's what it was. Um, Yeah, he co-wrote Time Bandits. But, you know, Michael Palin's uh, post-Python history is the TV show Ripping Yarns, which is like an anthology comedy series and a travel show host.
1: Yeah, and and even a memoirist because he still still has one last, uh, well, one more uh volume to do catching up to t- 2010
0: but I, yeah it's but again I, I, I don't mean to say 1988 fish call wanda like he wasn't doing any i mean ripping yarns was out but like not to say that like you know his 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 history as as and i say travel show host is more of like a, an, a like almost like a david attenborough like you know master of knowledge of of the world and just taking people around and showing them yeah
1: like um, the galapagos special at one point yeah tons of stuff
0: but um but yeah, so Fish Coleman for me was being able to watch these guys that I, I, you know, didn't see outside of Python together again in a lot of ways. Even though they they hardly share the screen in this movie, if at all, if i remember correct, there's definitely two scenes. Yeah, in um, yeah but it's right. more it's more Klein and Palin and watching the two of them you know, with the oh. French fries and everything like that. You know, just like Ken, you know, he has a stutter in the movie. I'm not trying to make fun of people who have stutters, of course. Um, oh, no,
1: obviously not no this is this is re- this is just pure reference to kevin klein's auto picking on for michael palin's ken yeah and if if anybody out there has ever felt like if, if anybody's ever been picked on a personal tick like for a personal tick like that watch a fish called wanda because you're going to love the ending <laughs> but yeah uh, and again this is this was such a flashpoint when it came out because I'm looking at looking just basic stats. Yeah, seven and a half million dollars was how right, much. Say, say that again. Seven and a half million dollars. This was made for in 1988 money or 1987 money. 188.6 million.
0: It was again. I know we talked about it. I know Katie also said that she didn't even realize it until she was looking back at it again. But I very vividly remember how. Huge! This thing was. And I know we talked about it before, but because there was a time, because I, I, I have a feeling that people under a certain age can't fathom that a comedy rules the box office,
1: and there's so for many weeks. And for several weeks, it was plugging away to become number one. This it's it's insane. It's insane. Like it says here: six weeks of wide release in the U.S., it reached number one. I don't. I
0: don't. I can't remember very vividly the world you know, like beyond my front door a lot of ways at that point in my life. But I remember how much fervor there was for this film when it came out. And for years after pinpointing, because again, that's the thing we talk about a lot. And I and I know I, I brought it up already, but like when Faulty Towers hit, even though it technically in a lot of ways flopped because it only had such a, a limited run, which and again, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes with British TV because British TV, you know, really allows you for the most part, just like make what you want. If you don't want to keep going, you don't have to do it. Yeah. But it was this idea that it didn't go anywhere in people's minds. But most up until, you know, it was I Love Lucy at a certain point and everything was based off I Love Lucy. After Faulty Towers, sitcoms took their cue from Faulty Towers, all of them to the point where they even
1: tried to remake it as an American show.
0: And I think A Fish Called Wanda, even though people weren't trying to copy it as far as how it played, there was this sentiment of we have to be A Fish Called Wanda now, or we have to be known as A Fish Called Wanda if we want to know that we were popular. And that was for, just for a good few years. So it was interesting to see Hackelis' influence on on both TV and film in that way, where like they were... And we won't talk about it too much, because... Everybody who everybody who's in the know does know that the cast came back together to do a completely different movie. Talk about talk about because not a sequel, but if you want to talk about like legacy sequels or the idea of like yeah, or you a
2: know,
0: spiritual sequel. Yeah, a bit later on with, with 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 Fierce Creatures. Um but like it's not like Kleese went on to keep writing scripts for films in ways that it's like it's like I did something, it made
1: a impact, and now I'm just gonna do something else. So what's really interesting is the week, the domestic weekend that A Fish Called Wanda opens up, Coming to America is the number one film at the box office.
0: Another comedy though.
1: Yes. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was in its fourth week and was kind of wavering back. Like it says, you know, it was second the week before, it was third this week. And another small indie favorite uh, that we'll never talk about on this show because it's not an overdue rental was uh,
0: Die Hard. I was going to say, I was going to let you guess. So yeah. the year, but yeah, Die Hard was had to be Die Hard, yeah. Yeah,
1: Die Hard was uh, released that same weekend, and it's like 16th place, Die Hard, 17th place. The first cold Wanda. This is just domestically. Then next weekend, Roger Rabbit jumps up to number one. Die Hard shoots all the way up to number three. Mm. Cold Wanda's still at 17th. But as we said before, it was six weeks before it actually became a top title. And let me just throw out some other movies that are in cineplexes at this time yeah uh, the deadpool midnight run the re-release mm. of bambi caddyshack 2 uh big top peewee big bull durham short circuit 2 crocodile dundee 2 like there's all of the like red heat arthur 2 red like heat. all these movies are out at this point and the, while some of them still have you know pretty good impacts, it's not as cutthroat as say like i would i would love to see a movie open and go for six weeks and finally become number one the last movie i could think of that had legs that were anywhere that similar besides uh everything everywhere all at once which is still continuing to crush in specialty box office was the greatest showman yeah you should be fist pumping that because everything everywhere all at once fucking rocks
0: well, like We'll have a whole discussion about that for a special thing that we're going to do at some point or another. But
1: but yeah, Greatest Showman was the last movie I could think of where it didn't start off as like a mega yes. hit and then it continued and you rarely ever see that. So even if it's a movie like Greatest Showman, I'll be like, you know what? I, I respect that it could do that, even though I'm not a fan of the film.
0: Well, there's, there's two things that I'm going to have to say about everything you just said. First of all, not only for something to be able to do that talking about A Fish Called Wanda, not A Greatest Showman. Yeah. Like, not all, but most of the movies you mentioned, that's like, even if it's something that wasn't well-regarded, but did big box office, let's say, you know, all those titles, that's massive to be able to, even at 17th at that point, to, to, to have a, a certain a glimmer of recognition along all those titles, which are history to a lot of people yeah it's it's pretty impressive and i have to say the second thing is is that and i don't mean to get off topic at all and we won't we won't uh dwell on it too much but
1: not it's our show do whatever the fuck you
0: i'm will. still surprised that arthur 2 came out in 1988 in my mind it came out a lot earlier
1: <laughs> figure because Ar- wasn't arthur 1 like 81 80 oh, yeah it was like it was like somewhere it was very early it
0: almost it felt like it was one of those things that could have been late 70s if you didn't know kind of yeah. thing
1: um, I'm surprised 88 was Arthur too. Yeah, maybe Dudley Moore was just really busy. I know he I mean, obviously he was really busy in the 80s, but he was also really I, drunk.
0: Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I love Dudley Moore. Don't get me wrong, but he was just mm.
1: yeah. You know, I he, want I des I
0: des- I, des- and I know it's on the list, but uh, crazy people's Dudley Moore movie. I got we got to talk about at one point. Besides the original, Bedazzled.
1: dazzled. Um, oh, original Bedazzled is no question, but I would be interested because. Again, Crazy People was something that I saw the ads and it felt like it was sort of interesting. Like I like, I I glommed on a Dudley Moore because it was like seeing him, it's like, I like Dudley Moore. And it's like, maybe if I started with Bedazzled as a kid, it would have happened sooner. But yeah, when I I hit Bedazzled, oh man.
0: Crazy People has a special, Crazy People is one of those movies that like my brother and I watched all the time on HBO when we were a kid. And like, we were the only- not only only people but only people especially our age which is like we couldn't talk about it with other people they did not know what the f- we wouldn't. go to the, yeah. our, our our classmates and go like sony bony they're like okay and not not getting the reference or anything like that so um
1: i, I wouldn't i would have only probably been able to talk to a handful of people about memoirs of an invisible man in, <laughs> oh in yeah that's interesting second grade
0: that's it well i mean I, I, I don't know that that felt different for me at least when it came out but the, we have an episode on that, people. You can go back and listen to that one and, uh, and, uh, and hear the things all we have to say about that. But let's go back to A Fish Called Wanda, though, because oh, yes, please. it's one of those things, too, where...
1: It's so quotable.
0: It's not, it's not even the quotes for me. It's more, too, it's just that, like, it's one of those films that no matter how many times I've seen it, I'll put it on, I'll kind of not forget what happens, but kind of forget the way it yeah. opens itself out and and and, and kind of lays itself out for the audience.
1: And any movie that can do that is brilliant because of the sheer fact that you're getting caught up. You're getting caught up in the storytelling. you're getting caught up in the performances and everything that you forget. Oh, so that's how the second dog dies. Or, <laughs> oh, maybe we should really be talking about Michael Palin's uh, disguise as a Rastafarian.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, or not. I don't know <laughs> it's
1: just little things. and it's like it, it the, the movie is it's not only, a stunning comedy. It's a fantastic heist movie. I mean, it, that that's that's a wonderful subgenre that we could probably go on for hours because yeah. the comedy. If you do it right, it's special. If you do it okay, it's still something fun to get in with. But it is so hard when you want to plot all those double crosses and twists and false motives and just all that other stuff. Like I remember seeing the first Ocean's Eleven reboot, a remake. And just being blown away by that, mm. and it really just it, every writer immediately sets down to the sets down to the typewriter It's like, okay, what's the twist? And then everything else comes afterwards. But that's a problem.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean that's the thing about official wanted too, because it's not necessarily almost thinking of it as a twist. It's just thinking about it's thinking about like which is the which is the final double yeah. cross, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's um, a process. It's not specifically yeah. a twist because everyone's pretty on the level. They want sex or money and they're going to do what they feel is the correct amount of deeds to get there
0: and then i will say though even though he because here's the one thing i constantly forget because even though he also wants the money i kind of forget how much michael ken michael palin really loves his fish like really cares and it's like it's actually like a hurtful thing for him even though it's it's comedic as they as kevin klein's eating them uh per
1: se um kevin Kevin klein man just (laughs) i love the mixture of energies in this movie because you have john cleese and michael palin from the pythons and then you've got jamie lee curtis and mike kevin klein who are shit hot stars at this point like blazing fucking american stars because kevin klein had been doing wonderful comedic roles and you know and, and various theatrical okay. productions and then jamie Lee curtis you know everything from halloween to trading places that happened at this point
0: well thats that see that's where because i'm, I'm going to disagree with the way you described kevin klein's career at that point
1: i'll allow see- it because i love kevin klein and i don't want to undersell him
0: because kevin klein to me at that point is still a dramatic actor only Fair. Fair, fish fair. call wanda is what opened him up to for people to say this guy's funny I'm not saying that some of his roles because look let's this talk was about, the star maker let's talk about film roles in film roles up to that point he only has sophie's choice pirates of peasants big chills big chill silverado violets of blue cry freedom and then a fish call wanda
1: Ooh, true when you run when you run through that that sort of run yeah but then I, like after a fish called Wanda, to prove your point, he gets things like, I love you to death. Dave. Soap dish. Soap, oh, soap dish. I didn't sleep with her.
0: And Fish called Wanda, I, th- I mean, again, because he also, he also had stage work, but, but not the world didn't see it at that point. Yeah. Um, so like the big comedic turn was a fish called Wanda. And that's right. what opened him up to get stuff like Dave.
1: <laughs> you know, and I Soap sure Dish. I love that movie so much. And I remember shortly after my, uh, Ivan Reitman's passing, someone was like, Dave is Ivan Reitman's best movie. And I just sat there and I was like, yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I love Ghostbusters. But we'll, we'll Ghostbusters- talk
0: about Dave another time too. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. Oh, yeah. But just, I, I, I really do want to get Kevin Klein on here at some point, just because I want to talk to him so much. And it's like being, like, this was the movie That put him on the radar. I think it was for my family and for myself because again, just all the quotes, like my father father loved this movie and not just because he had a huge crush on Jamie Lee Curtis, still does. But he just, again, this, well, true, very true. Jamie Lee Curtis is just, I don't even know what to say about the woman except that she's just a goddamn treasure. And it's like, this movie is a bunch of goddamn treasures being fused into like a gold ingot. That makes you laugh.
0: I want to say something now that's going to upset maybe you and some other people, and definitely people out there, because it's not that I don't um, have any distaste for it or anything like that. I just never watched Bob's Burgers.
1: Okay.
2: There's
0: also the
1: time to start yet. if you ever want to.
0: So I haven't seen the film yet either. So I was unaware until I was just scrolling through things to find out that Kevin Klein. Mr. Fish Oder character odor. in it. <laughs>
1: okay. All right. So if it's anything I'm going to sell you on this show with, or at least selected episodes, Kevin Kline plays Mr. Fish Oder. He is an eccentric landlord that basically owns uh, this uh, amusement pier called Wonder Wharf and also is Bob's landlord. And he is just an eccentric, rich old man that gets to get into so much trouble and and quirk that he just and it's kevin the the fact that that, that's just the character itself what kevin klein brings to it is so brilliant because there's one scene where he's basically arguing with another tenant that wants to take over bob's shop in an episode and then he's trying to give an impassioned speech and the guy's like blah 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 and then kevin klein's like jimmy and then every, like every time he it has to reprimand Jimmy, it's like a different way like, Jimmy, Jimmy. And it's just the mileage he gets out of the name Jimmy in this one scene.
0: I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to want because again, it's, it's just that I never started and it's just finding the time to do it. Yeah, um, well, but, it's-, it's, it's here's And this is me because this is what I do. I, I, I hear something and then I start to take a rant off and do another direction. As, yeah. I'm not going to get onto a rant, but like the way you describe his delivery of Jimmy, I, all I could think about was Timmy from South park <laughs> tomorrow, you know, I was just like, I just kept thinking about that. Just like you do it. So, so I'm sorry. I just, I just <laughs> when you said it. I'm just like, I, I hear you, Mike. I keep hearing what you're saying, but in the same breath in the back of my mind, all I'm hearing is Timmy,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but again, tying back into a fishbowl Wanda. Yeah. We're an asshole. It's something that you hear so many times and then a line, like if you touch his dick, I'll be jealous. And it's just like these little things here and there, and he just, he knows when to turn on the gas and when to be like, "Oh, you Bringlish are so perfect," and then just it, it, he he runs the gamut, and it's you know it, it's not hard to see why he won one of those rare Oscars that comedy gets.
0: Yeah, because uh, yeah, it was because well deserved, honestly, and I, I think that's again that's like one of those things where like. I'll go back to this. I think I've talked about this before, which is the, what I call the Woody Harrelson effect. Because Woody Harrelson, and I didn't know that, I mean, I knew it, but I didn't notice it myself as much until I saw a big 60-minute special on him back in the 90s or late 90s, right around when, when uh, People vs. Larry Flint came out. Woody Harrelson is such a goddamn space cadet in real life that if you go and look at even him playing Woody in Cheers, it makes it a brilliant performance. Oh, yeah. Because if wow. you see Woody Harrison day to day in real life, how he is, you realize that everything he's ever done, even if he's playing some complete moron, is brilliant. Now, I'm not calling Kevin Klein um, a space cadet or anything like that, but it's talking about that idea of like, yes, because in Pirates of Penzance, you can get this, this gouty, kind yeah, of out-of-the-box cool. presentation but for somebody who's known for these more dour not performances say but ro- movies roles and movies that are more dour that when you get these comedic roles it's like give this man an award please
1: <laughs> again sophie's choice in the big chill when you got those on your resume cry
0: free- again i go back to cry free i don't think people realize what that you know steve Biko people and again which is it should have been the one complaint i want not complaint because it, it did bring, open a lot of people's eyes who don't know but the movie should be about steve Biko, and it is but it's told through the eyes of it's told through the story technically of the white man of the of the yeah. of the piece which is the the weird part about it but, it, but again and, you know for the time for the time it was also made they did they did a wonderful job and it did open up a lot of eyes but it's it should be denzel washington and steve Biko, yeah. not <laughs> <laughs> not kevin klein and Cry freedom yeah
1: well again what you're talking about here is almost like when leslie nielsen did airplane it's like up until airplane like yep. the reason he was cast in airplane was because he was just really good at doing these lines like i just want you to know good luck we're all counting on you like very seriously and very straight ahead and then he that just led to naked gun and police, well, police squad and then naked gun and one that I think is, is still wonderful outside of the canon, Wrongfully Accused. I, I love okay. accused.
0: I'm gonna say I'm going to say something about Wrongfully Accused.
1: <laughs> because I, First, I'm going to say that, but that's also,
0: and again, Wrongfully Accused wasn't necessarily, it was more the Pat Proff side of things, not the Zuckeray from Zucker. Yeah, but,
1: yeah, there's two very different sides of that equation.
0: But Zucker made, because Zucker it with Zucker after Leslie Nielsen, I think, had that way of like just taking people that weren't known for doing things, whether it's they always wanted to cast their favorite sports, not because they're sports fans, or when they made, when they jumped *Police Squad* to *Naked Gun*, they took George Kennedy and put him in there as well. <laughs> you know, they took all these actors who were more Lloyd Bridges. They did it with Lloyd Bridges in *Airplane* oh, as well. They took yeah. these actors who were much more known for dramatic turns. Robert Stack, but *Wrongfully Accused*. I agree. It's. I don't think *Wrongfully Accused* is a great movie. It's fun. But it's, it's much better for all them, but. Um, I apologize. I just had a massive brain fart. I have to look something up. I've forgotten his name now. Um, and I'm gonna kill myself when I see his name.
1: Um, Don't do that. It's bad for listenership, and I care about you.
0: Not, 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 not really, people. But because uh, they used him in um, Richard Crenna. because Richard Crenna <laughs> wasn't Hotshot Pardeux, but Richard Krenna in Wrongfully Accused. There is, he, <laughs> his timing is so amazing because there's. They, I can't remember what they're breaking in. <laughs> they're breaking in to search for Leslie for Nielsen in the apartment and he sees spaghetti. He's like, Plate of spaghetti on the table. I can't remember how it is, but he's holding the gun up. It's like, Plate of spaghetti and meatballs at nine o'clock. Be careful. His delivery is so amazing. It's not a funny joke. His delivery is so brilliant. That is one of well, the funniest yeah. things that people haven't seen.
1: Well, yeah, that's just, it's, it's the absurdity that sells the joke rather than waka waka punchline it's like it. it's just that well, performance but- and that's a lot of stuff that's in a fish called wanda well that's like, again,
0: i'll go, go ahead i won't i won't break off i'll tell you after <laughs> no go, go ahead Well, i was gonna say i don't need to break off a fish called wanda again too but like talking about these movies because i think one of the most criminally underrated spoof films which is called reiner who did it was when he made um fatal instinct fatal instinct not only is Armand Asante amazing in that movie, which it's, I that's one I still
1: need to cross off my list.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. I won't I won't ruin anything, but there's there's a court scene. Tony Randall's the court is the judge in court. And um he calls recess. And of course, it's the joke, they go out and they're on a playground like it's recess. <sighs> but they're walking in, and it's just a still it's just like a still shot. But Tony Randall's walking past going back in, and he's very serious. He's like, I love recess. the funniest things in the entire world fatal instinct is a very uh underappreciated it's it's not amazing but it's very underappreciated it's very funny they did a lot of good stuff in there call reiners
1: that were underappreciated from that era like there's that i know we have loaded weapon one on the one apparently
0: people hate i think is actually very funny
1: (laughs) and (laughs) well just like i have basketball on my list and some people may not like that but i thought it was
0: uh, no, who? because here's the thing about baseball. Baseball is a bad movie, but it's a very funny movie at the same time. Only because of Parker and Stone being able to at least deliver lines in their style, um, you know. And all you know, I agree because baseball is not a good. But I, I agree. I like baseball. I always enjoyed it, and I can't. I don't know what to tell you about it. But um, <laughs> again, we won't. I won't ruin it. And I'll get back to Fish Colonna. But talk about Loaded Weapon One, my favorite thing ever. There's a scene in Load Weapon 1 where they're doing the whole like bomb on a boat thing from loaded from Lethal Weapon. And it's Emilio Estevez and he's trying to like take apart. And then John Lovitz is the Joe Pesci character from the Lethal Weapon movies. <gasps> and he just appears out of nowhere and he's like, Aren't you supposed to cut the, the blue wire? And he, and he he's like, This is the blue wire. And he's like, John Lovitz's delivery. Yeah, but that one's orange. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still one of the funniest things that's ever in existence. And people don't say all right. I love John Lover. What was your point about Fish Called Wanda? I apologize.
1: I don't even remember. I I may not have even had a point at that point. <laughs> but getting back to a fish called Wanda, uh seriously, just the writing holds up. And even, you know, again, the lesser version of things, uh, you know, that old saw sawhorse, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis would have totally been just a floozy in the wrong version of this movie but you have this brilliant fully realized character who realizes everybody wants to fuck me that's fine i'm not only am i only going to let who i want to sleep with in the door i'll still play along to a certain extent with everyone else to make sure i know what the score is and that's how it all starts with her and archie and then eventually you know her and john cleese sort of fall in love And, you know, that's another thing where it's like, if you can write me a movie that convinces me, Jamie Lee Curtis falls in love with John Cleese. uh, Yeah, no wonder you're going to be nominated for best uh, screenplay.
0: Well, he's very tall and he can do that. What was the German accent?
1: What was the the accent? He was was doing Russian. Russian. (laughs) Like he ran through, I think he ran through like a slight whole gamut there. And then it's like, that whole (laughs) gag is just wonderful. And then the payoff when the family comes in. And, and uh, yeah, well, we won't spoil that, of course,
2: but- Well, I mean,
0: we can spoil as much as we can, because again, everybody, if you haven't, you, know, when, you should know that when we get to this point of talking about our overdue rental in this section, spoilers are abound. We didn't say anything, but we won't, you, know, yeah. you can go, go and see it. You know, We've mentioned a few things, but now is maybe the time that you should go, cross off Fish Call Wanda from your overdue rentals list, and then send us an email, tell us what you thought about it, tell us your thoughts. And then, of course, this Friday on June 17th, after you've watched uh, Good Luckily O Grande, I, I, I keep wanting to say Grande. <laughs> good Luckily O Grande. Come back and give us your thoughts on that as well. But also, if Mike, if people need to find us, where can they find us?
1: That's a very good question. Because when we're not busy trying to book a last minute non smoking flight out of London Heathrow, uh, which who isn't at that point? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Over the Rental Show on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals, and if you want to send us love letters, suggestions, and directions to the Cathcart Towers, you can email us at OverdueRentals at gmail.com. But while you're doing all this cool internet stuff and looking up more delicious Kevin Klein and Jamie Lee Curtis performances, as well as John Cleese and Michael Palin performances, you should be watching. You should listen to more of our episodes because you know maybe some of those stars have popped up in the past maybe they have popped up in the future according to when we've recorded this episode they're gonna pop up again I guarantee we probably have a movie for each of them so hold your horses okay but if you want to listen to all those other episodes which I think we, we are now over 50 I don't remember what number we're at at this point we may be at a full deck at this point a full deck of 52 but we'll see
0: we're over. We're, well, this, this, when this, when people hear this, it'll be over. It's over.
1: Oh, marvelous. Well, however many episodes are out there on the internet right now for overdue rentals, you can listen to them wherever you ethically source your podcasts Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Audible, wherever you find wonderful listening content in the world of podcasts, we'll be there. But another very important thing if you're seeking us out, we're seeking something out from you and that is ratings reviews subscriptions because we want to keep the overdue rentals counter open and we actually i looked at spotify the other day we had no star ratings so i threw one in to sort of kick things off uh i know i'm partial but you know i like the show big fan uh, but yes, I would. Uh, we implore you to do the same because we want to know how well we're doing out there, and that might just help us land some even bigger guests. Who knows what is happening in the future?
0: And with that, Michael, blah bye. blah blah blah. blah, 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 blah.